Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host. Welcome, everyone. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice, a show that aspires to stand at the edge, the edge of what we know, what we understand, what's familiar, comfortable, to see what conversations emerge from there. We invite guests willing to explore that terrain with us. They may be expert in certain things, but none of us are expert in navigating this troubled time. So we will be wondering out loud together. It's my great pleasure today to be speaking with Rochelle Lamb. An author, workshop presenter, and communication coach, Rochelle specializes in conflict resolution and breakthrough conversations. Her lifelong interest in human development, relationship dynamics, and the roles that culture and ecology play in people's lives, along with her ability to skillfully pave the way for transformational dialogue between people, consistently produces powerful learning experiences for individuals and audiences. Recognized as a speaker, writer, poet, teacher, and nonviolent communication trainer, Rochelle brings a practical yet innovative wisdom earned over decades of studying language, relationships, conflict, and power through the lenses of nonviolent communication, leadership, cultural anthropology, spirituality, mythology, poetry, storytelling, deep ecology, and social change. She consistently approaches discourse with skillful means, remaining faithful to the objective of opening people's hearts and minds to holding a higher standard for being human in spite of the many challenges and adversities that plague us in our modern, fast-paced times. Rochelle is the author of Steps to Conscious Living and Communication Basics, an overview of nonviolent communication. I've known Rochelle since 2014 and have always been amazed by her capacity to see and speak clearly about both beautiful and troubling things. She is a fierce and eloquent lover of life, and I admire her greatly and feel very lucky to have her with us. Welcome, Rochelle. Oh, thank you, Annie. So before we, we began, you and I chatted briefly and, and noticed that both of us have been a bit agitated <laughs> the last few days. And, and so um, I know you have a poem that begins there, and I'm wondering if you would be willing to share it. Yes, I would be willing to share it. And I'm, I'm reminded, too, that we're only three days away from Mother's Day. And uh, I just wondered if some of the agitation might be related to that, what, what it means uh, to be a mother and uh, whether you're a human or whether you're the planet Earth. Um, mm. So the poem is called Agitation. I'm agitated. My pen is agitated. It's bleeding onto the page. I'm wrestling with the rough beast, the one slouching toward Bethlehem. Yes, friends, this is that time, and it's not so easy because we're chained to that very beast. It doesn't matter that we can shop till we drop 
or binge on flaxseed or lattes or tame difficult people or recite powerful affirmations. It doesn't matter because tell me please, how is a Starbucks coffee cup not violent? How is it right or responsible to send a child to school where the curriculum of exploitation is delivered by kind people to keep the engine of the civilization well oiled? How is complicity not violent? What does it mean to be awake? What if waking up is too painful? What if not waking up is too painful? Which grief shall we choose? I tell you this. I am looking into the innocent eyes of tomorrow's child, my tongue idle and heavy by the weight of how things are. What shall I say to this child? What shall I say? Here's what I want to say. I want to say that men and women gathered together. They took a good hard look at all the ways they profited from taking too much, having too much, and hurting the world. They voted instead for taking care of mother. They voted for accountability. They voted for reverence. They voted for the soul's need for beauty. They voted for kinship. And then they rolled up their sleeves and they labored. They planted gardens. They raised chickens and goats. They wove their own cloth and taught their children these things. They washed the bodies of their dead and remembered their roots. They gathered round crackling fires until the arcing night sky, under the arcing night sky humming with stars, and told their creation stories. They fell in love with the natural order of things. They fell in love with their one and only home. They fell in love with their good fortune of being alive. And that, my dear child, is something for you to know. You come from good people. You come from fierce people. You come from devoted people. You come from radical people. That's what I want to be able to say to tomorrow's child. What are the odds? Mm. Thank you, Rochelle. Um, <clears throat> I got it's hard to yeah, go ahead. a little bit, you know, because... Uh, I haven't read that aloud for a long time, but, you know, since the last time I read it, I became a, a grandparent. And uh, so, yeah, it's a big, a big task ahead of us, I think. Yeah. yeah. I, the, the, the part where you ask, what does it mean to be awake? Mm-hmm. What if it's too painful not to wake up? What if it's too painful to wake up? Mm. Um, I... Uh, that's so the, those are such alive questions uh, in me right now, and and I'm wondering. You pose the question, which doesn't mean you have an answer, but I'm wondering if um, if you have thoughts on what it means to be awake right now. Uh, surely I do, and and I understand too uh, very well the reasons why um, people would choose not to, and sometimes I choose to turn the other way. It's, it's really hard. And yet, um, I think there's more to be said for being awake to what's happening than there is for not being awake. Um, because ultimately, it's where our allegiances show up, you know, in, in our actions, what we're choosing to do. 
Um, and all I have to do is look into the eyes of my grandson to know I'd rather be awake. Yeah. Mm. I'm wondering, the poem references complicity mm-hmm. and the violence of complicity. And there's another piece that you wrote that I was, that I was looking at uh, that where you write, my life is dependent upon my complicity and I can be tormented by knowing it or brokenhearted by knowing it. Mm. More and more, I choose the latter. Mm-hmm. And what distinguishes torment from, from brokenheartedness? Well, I would say that guilt and shame have a lot to do with it. So, you know, just to be tormented is, you know, we end up in this conversation of I shouldn't be doing this, I should be doing that, you know, which is part of the communication work that I do with people as well. And to recognize that that's, it's just a ping ponging back and forth over the same old, um, uh, there's a tyranny involved in it and a torment. Um, I'd rather go for the brokenheartedness because at least that is a rich terrain. You know, I've noticed how often people uh, speak about uh, dying, how they don't want somebody very close to them to die because they're afraid of what will happen when they die. And yet, you know, inevitably the person that they might be speaking of, let's just say it's a parent, you know, who's in their 80s or 90s. And my own father died uh, a few years ago, um, just three weeks shy of 80. And it's very interesting to notice people's reactions to to this impending grief. But, you know, I say, well, let's just start the grieving process already because we know what's happening. And there's something very rich about it because what I found over and over again is that those people who do uh, embrace grief and start to tell stories of how much they love someone, I mean, it just opens up this really rich terrain um, is very fertile, in my opinion, where I don't see much fertility in grief and shame. Uh, sorry, in guilt and shame. Yeah, two G words, words that mean something very different. So, so that's what I see is that grief is, is fertile and things can come out of it. Um, it's not the reason why I would uh, choose it, like looking for a solution, you know, but rather just to recognize that uh, those tears, uh, they uh, can water some really parched soil. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, so you're mentioning grief and how people are hesitant to, to go there. And, and I'm wondering about your work with communication. Mm-hmm. And, 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 well, maybe to start, if you could just speak a little bit about what your work entails. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, I can start by saying that, uh, oh, I guess it would have been, it would have been in my 20s. I actually embarked on a career in uh, wedding photography. So, um, which, which I was such a romantic, you know, and I just loved a good, a a good story, a good romance. Um, And I also love beauty. And uh, it's wonderful to be able to use a camera to capture beauty. And then, uh, but I was always interested in relationships uh, not only how they looked visually, but also what was going on behind the, the scenes. And so I, I discovered after I got married myself and after I had children, I realized that a lot of the ways that I was speaking with my children um, were really going against the grain of what I really believed. 
And I came across the work of Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, uh, who wrote the book Nonviolent Communication that many people might be familiar with. And uh, when I discovered his work, I just jumped in. Uh, I just jumped in with, and I, I haven't looked back from that because he was he was dreaming of a world where people could be fully alert to um, what what's needed. Um, now, for many people, they look at it. I think primarily in terms of human needs, but I, I have really stretched this to include everything that's needed. Um, what's needed for, what do birds need? What does the ocean need? You know, all of those things. Um, and so I just recognized that there was a way in which we were communicating that was pretty much uh, the pushing away the very things that people uh, truly long for. So, so that's how I got involved with the work. And one of the things I remember Marshall saying at a training in response to the question from somebody in the audience who said, Marshall, what's it going to take to really change things in this world? And uh, this was a, a question that was coming from a real grief-stricken place. And I will never forget Marshall's response to that. Uh, he said, mourning. It's going to take a lot of mourning. So he was basically he was speaking about grief, grief and mourning, that we need to really recognize um, uh, that there are things that we do to meet our own needs that actually create uh, deprivation elsewhere. Yeah, so that's a kind of a long answer to your question. <laughs> but, yeah, no. Sure. Um, yes. So earlier you were, you were speaking about aliveness and I'm I'm thinking about language and aliveness and how that and communication and how language has a potentially a capacity to help us see more clearly or to enliven us or it can be sort of deadening and distancing and and I'm wondering what you see when you work with people around around language and it's it's generative capacity or it's distancing capacity well, let me start by saying that uh, there's a, I believe there's a saying that, it, you know, that I've heard from Indigenous people who stand before a forest and would point to the forest and say, what you call natural resources, we call relatives. So I'm going to start there because I like to point to that, this language that of natural resources and human resources, what it does is it turns everything that's alive, including our, our people in our lives, into resources, into something that's there to serve our own personal needs. And it's a very... Uh, it's a very tight or narrow narrative, if you will, if everything that we're doing is simply based on whether or not it works for us. I mean, that's an expression we'll hear quite a bit of. Well, that doesn't work for me. That doesn't work for me. And I just want you to hear the tonal quality when I say it. That doesn't work for me. So <laughs> this is not, it's not a very friendly or generous uh, opening into a conversation. I'd be more interested in someone's uh, very real uh, struggles with trying to figure out like how do we how do we live together uh, whether it's a family or whether it's a communal household or or the world or you know our cities how do we do this thing called living together and not forget that we're not alone here that there's more than our 
our little personal needs and preferences, you know. And when you're born into a world where so much comes to you immediately, you know, it's our, we, we're hungry and we're pretty much able to satisfy our hunger immediately. And I'm speaking about food right now. Um, so, so whatever it is, you can, you can just dial it up, you know, and have it delivered to your door. And this, this creates a kind of a, a what do I call a, a low tolerance for not having uh, your so-called needs met immediately. So I think this just basically translates into how we treat each other. And this is why I love uh, poetry so much because uh, I, I like how David White, the poet David White, speaks about poetry as the language against which we have no defenses. And so I'm teaching nonviolent communication, which is a way to basically understand certain um, uh, components and aspects of language, but also uh, combining that with the richness of poetry and of landscapes so that we can uh, get out of this little uh, prison box, if you will, that we've created. Um, I think it affects us the way we live, certainly. You know, uh, right now I'm speaking to you, Annie, over Skype, and uh, I do have a window here that I'm able to look outside and see some some real beauty, but I am pretty much isolated in this small room as I speak to you, and that has that has an impact, and it would be much different, wouldn't it, if we could be sitting around a crackling fire and uh, raising a glass of meat and wondering about this thing called living together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a poem of yours that speaks to this too, I think, um, that I'd like to read. Okay. This one is uh, Where Am I, Strange World? I stare at high resolution screens. My fingers make words appear blogs, news feeds, emails, Twitters, satellites working round the clock. The binary world must be kept alive. I write about aches and pains, about heartbreak and the end of love. I write about mayhem and loneliness, about lilies, honey, and disappearing bees, about cresting waves and singing stones. I almost believe in this strange world. The propaganda has been so convincing. I rarely stop to ask if any of it is real. I have bills to pay and groceries to buy. How could it be anything but real? But I'm only barely in the world. Lights on, linoleum under my feet. I'm banging at the keyboard at 2 a.m. before I lose track. Tell me, please, which world do I belong to? I can't remember the last time I courted the moon and spoke to wolves, slept near a bubbling brook and rose at dawn, asked the ground what she needed, and gave her a jewel from my pouch. When we sit here, where is here? Is here the thrumming city that never dims? Or the owl's wings silent across the open fields? That we can choose is a dangerous privilege we might wish to reconsider. Mm. And, you know, I, I keep having the experience that you describe in this poem of, of the propaganda being so convincing and the having bills to pay and groceries to buy. And it's, it, it seems like this process of forgetting and remembering and forgetting. But for me, the, I, I, I can't seem to remember 
unless I have some kind of contact with the living world. Mm-hmm. So I live in a big city and I move through the day and often the most of my day is mostly concrete and right angles and in, indoor spaces and underground spaces. And, and there's a logic to it that starts to really take hold. And last night I went for a walk in the park near my house under the full moon. And uh, the, an entirely different logic re-entered my body in that walk than what, where I spend the rest of my day. And it feels like a remembering, but I can't seem to hold it amidst this other environment and and it does feel like there's enormous consequence to that and and I'm and probably it shows up in my language too mm-hmm. I don't know what my question is I'm just, <laughs> I'm just mourning I don't know yeah. um, I, I guess maybe there is a question in there about um, do you do you see people's language or way of relating change if the environment changes? If they're in different spaces or in different... It's not a guarantee. It's not a guarantee. I simply think it's easier to achieve, but by no means is it a guarantee. Um, because pretty much wherever we go, there we are. <laughs> and, you know, the indoctrination and patterns of relating run really deep. Um, but I do believe uh, it's, it's much easier to begin to make changes when we're in a, a living environment that has uh, more of the wildness that sh- that's showing through. Yeah, much, much easier. But like I said, no guarantee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If someone were... If someone were we're wanting to examine their own communication to to look for ways in which they may be inadvertently I know this is I mean it's such a specific thing probably but I'm curious if if you have thoughts on where people might start just in being able to to see ways that their communication might be blocking them from being in relationship Yeah. Um, When I'm giving workshops, one of the major pieces around that is to look at, you know, what Marshall Rosenberg described as uh, uh, alienating communication versus, you know, alive communication or connecting communication. So alienating communication, I think, is a really wonderful thing to uh, become alert to. So there are some specific things that we are trained to do without recognizing that it it's not helpful to us. Um, so examples of that would be the way we diagnose things. It's, there's often, um, you know, like just to call another person uh, mean or manipulative or selfish, for instance, this usually does not end up having the very person we're describing in those ways turning around and saying, okay, uh, now that I've heard your, you know, diagnosis of me, what would you like me to do differently? It's not usually what happens. Usually what happens is a person becomes quite defensive. And so it's looking at the ways in which we're using language. And there's, a, there's an ABC or nuts and bolts about it. 
uh, which is what I, one of the reasons I really appreciate nonviolent communication because it's, it's incredibly practical and concrete. So, so I'm teaching people how to say something different than I feel manipulated. Instead of saying that, they would describe what the other person is saying or doing. And it might just be as simple as, you know, when I hear you say X, um, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a little concerned and I want to trust that everything is out on the table here. Or I want to trust that I can access my own free will. Something like that. And I'm wondering, you know, how you feel hearing what I just said. So it sounds a little bit formulaic, and it is initially. When people are learning this, it does have a formulaic quality to it. But I encourage people to drop it um, as soon as they can. It's just a way to help them recognize, as they would in music, do, re, mi, fa. You have to learn the basics first before you can make music. I'm not saying it's absolutely essential, but for for many people it is, especially if they've been trained in a way that actually uh, creates disconnection. Yeah. Does that make sense, Annie? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it, a big piece of it is uh, holding open a possibility that there's more we haven't seen Mm -hmm. as opposed to coming in as though we know. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very big difference. Yeah. And, and even, even when people are learning MVC, and I don't exclude myself in this, it's so easy to fall into the trap of speaking uh, like we know it fully, you know. So I'm always encouraging people to see if they can uh, speak in a way that leaves a lot of space for everything that we don't know. And there's so much more than we don't know than what we do know. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's time to take a short break. My guest today is author, communication coach, and poet Rochelle Lamb. Information about individual coaching and workshop events with Rochelle, including her upcoming five-day retreat at Hollyhock in British Columbia, nonviolent communication relating with heart and conscience, can be found at RochelleLamb.com, R-A-C-H-E-L-L-E, lamb.com and we will be right back after these messages become our friend on facebook post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline visit facebook.com forward slash voice america in these times of converging crisis the world needs us now more than ever before Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. 
You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back to Precipice. I'm Annie Levin, and my guest today is speaker, teacher, and nonviolent communication trainer, Rochelle Lamb. More information about Rochelle's work, including individual coaching, events, and her poetry and prose can be found at rochellelamb.com. So I want to read another of your poems, Rochelle, if that's okay with you. (laughs) That's fine. Um, This one is called Rickety Spoke. I don't know why. If it was because I'd made some mistakes or a general malaise had moved in with me. But I couldn't find happiness, maybe even hated myself, like I was worthless, a human disease. Someone told me I needed to learn to love myself. So I signed up, I bought the books, I went to retreats, sat silent for days on a pillow and block. I hit a rolled up futon with a baseball bat screamed my rage. I told my story in a healing circle. I danced to African drums, went to therapy, had a soul retrieval, journaled before bed, cradled my inner child, evoked my higher self. You can spend decades, and I did, and money equal to the down payment of a house, and I did. And I learned this, you only need to love life and love the world, not the crafted irreality forged from the Iron Age that caused most of your woes and needs your compassion, but the world of sun, moon, star, and earth, forest, leaf, berry, and feather, fur, claw, ocean, and gill, fire, stone, sand, and rain, life and death intertwined in ecstatic embrace, that wild and elemental one who wants you to fall in love. You only need to care with a big C that she will go on spinning on her axis of beauty. Because one day you turned towards the center, which was not you. And you planted some seeds, sang songs for the holy. Because you finally remembered that you are a rickety spoke tethered to the great mystery watering those seeds with your beautiful, broken heart. So this poem is really powerful for me uh, because I identify with, I've done many of the things listed (laughs) um, in the first half. And I, there's, there's such a deep uh, habit in our culture of making everything about the individual and, and that all healing and all that everything must turn inward. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a bit and the consequence of that. Yeah, I, I have done those things too. That's why I wrote about them. Uh, and there's there's a saying, and I have actually said it myself, though I don't agree with it any longer, which is uh, you must heal yourself before you can heal the world. And uh, I'm sure you've heard it. <laughs> and, yeah. And 
I mean, I don't have anything against, um, you know, working on oneself or, or examining our, our ways of responding. I think it's really important that we do that. However, it can turn into a full-time job and often just blind us from the fact that there's, there's a lot to be done. I'm not sure that the world at this time uh, can wait for us to get our act together in the way that we seem to think we can. Uh, you know, I think about how when people would approach Gandhi and wanting to know, uh, you know, they, they heard about him and they, they would love the things that, that he would say. And he was, you know, a seminal thinker and speaker. And so they would approach him because they wanted to learn from him. But what he would do is point them to the garden and say, you know, go work there. Uh, we, we need food here to feed everybody on the ashram. And the other thing he would say was that uh, the way that they were going to uh, take back India was through the spinning wheel. So he's speaking about things that are actually done with people's hands, not by, you know, locking oneself up into a room in order to learn more about, you know, personal healing. And, And again, I want to make it very clear that I'm not against, you know, making ourselves better people or... But I'm just concerned of what gets lost in the process. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I'm, I'm circling back to language here because one of the challenges that I've found, one, one of the things that's really beautiful about your poetry is that your words open up some possibility of a relationship with the world that goes beyond just myself, some possibility that I'm not at the center of everything. And I find that it's really challenging in in English, or at least in the the ways that English is most commonly spoken in, in the places where I live, for that to remain something that is possible to see. And I'm wondering if you can speak about how language might be, how one might be in relationship with language in a way that can allow for a wider seeing than what's granted to us if we go on autopilot. Well, that's such a good question. And I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to do it uh, justice by how I sort of fumble towards answering it. Because for me, I, I consider myself to be very much early on this path of, even though I've been studying it for most of my lifetime, uh, I recognize that there are people in this world who have a facility with language that I, I envy, I really envy. And it is, you know, our, it's the storytellers, the bards and the poets. So increasingly, I look towards them and what they're saying and how they're navigating this terrain so that I don't fall back into my own habitual mode, which is so easy to do. Um, So I I consider myself a real beginner on this path, Uh, even though there there are a few people who claim otherwise, uh, at least when they're in my presence. But... Uh, that is, honestly, that, that is how I feel in it. And I think it's important to not only be looking at communication in the, in the light of the, 
for, for instance, nonviolent communication that I'm teaching, which has to do with really ultimately how we're trained towards violence, but to also recognize that what we're really hungering for is a language that is full of life, you know? Um, like, where's the tendrils in how we're speaking, uh, reaching out towards each other to, to establish a connection with each other, recognizing that we're already connected in some way to something much vaster than our own, you know, vision of ourselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This, this thing that I call myself, I mean, it's a question that I like to ask people. When you're talking about your needs, you know, your needs, your preferences, how, how can you be so sure, at least I'm not, about who this you is that you've decided upon? You know, how, how can a person even be here without recognizing and acknowledging that they, they're not here independently of everything else. We're not little lone satellites. We came here, uh, we're born into a time where we're surrounded by things and decisions that were made even before we were born. And so I don't think that this level of freedom and autonomy that we claim to uh, have or wish to have is as ours as we think. Just, just, how does that yeah. sound? <laughs> yeah, it sounds it sounds important. I it makes me think about complicity again, and and another way to see it that that we're we're entangled. We're responsible. I don't mean responsible in a blaming way. I mean in a relational way that we that we like you said. We're not these individual uh, selves that came from nowhere and are connected to nothing, but we're tethered to these much, much larger stories, which then has the capacity. I think uh, I'm not. I'm I'm trying to find my way towards what I what I want to say, but that complicity has a has a very negative. Uh, potentially connotation and it's it's not that it's not true that we're complicit if we're if we're asleep or if we're willingly closing our eyes or even if we're awake but just can't figure out how to disentangle but there is some other side to complicity maybe that that has a real joyfulness potentially that's that's maybe not so lonely as as this individual self who needs to go to retreats and get and get fixed, um, but that there, there's some bigger story that we're part of if, if we can find our way to seeing it. Yeah. Um, somewhere in the first poem that I read, I said something about they fell in love with the natural order of things. And I think that perhaps uh, that's something that is lost on us because when you're born into a time where you're essentially given the message uh, all day long, you know, dream big, you can do what you want, you can overcome any obstacle, you know, and I appreciate the the sentiment behind that and even it, it has merit in some cases, but it can also be overdone to the degree that we're not even paying attention to, uh, to the bigger picture, everything that we do has uh, a consequence. And 
we're not really alert to it. You know, I, I remember, I, I don't know when plastic bags came into being, for instance. And um, so now if you bring your own bag to the grocery store, uh, you know, you, you they, they will uh, give you a little bit of a credit. I think it's five cents. Otherwise, if you need to use a plastic bag, uh, they will charge you five cents. But I, I think about some of the images that I've seen of, of beaches and these long expanses of shoreline where there are there's plastic bags that are are churning in the water or a whale that's cut open and full of plastic so somewhere uh, it was seen as it being a good idea to have plastic and that would have been part of a big dream to have plastic and so this piece around responsibility, yeah, it's, you could say this, it's not our fault that uh, plastic came into the world, as well as many other things. But now that we're alert to its consequences, what do we do now? And what does it mean when we say dream big and do, do all that you can, be all that you can be? What does that mean? in the light of the fact that every single thing we do has a consequence. So uh, to, to recognize there's a natural order of things, that there are seasons, that it doesn't make sense for people to plant their corn, you know, in February. It, it, because the land, that, that is not being in a reciprocal, mutual uh, uh, relationship of deep regard, and that's something I think that is, is missing for, for us. And I think we long for sacred relationship, but it's become so entangled with uh, uh, religion and our, you know, and our uh, concerns or worries about that. It's, it's very hard. Uh, it takes a lot, to put it this way, critical thinking and analysis to really want to see the degrees to which we've uh, walked away from a path of, uh, of rightful relationship, of sacred relationship with the earth and uh, others. So that's my long-winded response to your question on, uh, yeah, on that level of complicity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As someone who sees all of this so clearly and and it's it's clear from your writing that you you ha- you have a capacity to both see all of this difficulty and speak to it and and give voice to it and also to find so much to love and i'm wondering i guess maybe i'm wondering what it's like on a day-to-day basis for you as you move through the world of grocery stores and bills and flowering trees and everything else. What, how is it for you to be holding open space for all of this at once? Well, some days, quite frankly, I'm overwhelmed by it. Um, and that is by overwhelmed by the beauty of it all and also overwhelmed by the, the what I would call the, the horror um, and I don't think I would trade places with anyone. Uh, 
you might be able to convince me, but I don't think I would because my uh, my sense is that I'm I'm very much on my toes. That's that's one thing. And, and Annie, I'll, you know, I will disclose to people who are listening. I do live a very strange life. I have been basically uh, kind of a gypsy, kind of a nomad. Uh, I move around from home to home. I take care of people's homes and animals when when they want to go away. And so that leaves me somewhat unrooted. And yet I have over time developed a certain capacity to recognize that I am very rooted in the world, but in a much different way than I used to be before when I had a fixed address. And, and yet there's still some part of me that longs for that uh, fixed address. But right now I don't have it. And it has given me a way of uh, seeing the world that I didn't have before. But it comes at a high price to me in many ways. And yet I, I seem to be able to, to take it on. I'm also really grateful for the fact that I started speaking to you about uh, motherhood at the beginning of this program. And that uh, I consider myself very um, fortunate to have been mothered by a woman who, who was very much in love with poetry herself and in love with anthropology and big questions. Uh, she died quite young. Uh, she died at the age of 43 and had cancer in her late 30s. And uh, I was only 21 years old at the time with four younger brothers. But there was something in her manner of dying, uh, which was on a Christmas day. You know, she went into the hospital on Christmas Eve and died on Christmas Day. And there was something in her manner of living that really taught me a great deal. And I'm really grateful for that. And, you know, who wants to have a mother die at such a young age. I mean, I was 21, but my youngest brother was 10. That's, that's pretty young. And, uh, and I, I still miss her, you know? And uh, so there, there's, I've learned a lot from, from sorrow in my life. It's not something I wish for others, but I just recognize it's stitched into life. And so why not... Uh, bow to it, just as I would to, you know, uh, an, a, a table full of all the best foods that I could ever imagine, you know. Why not also bow to those times when there are things I wish were there, but aren't. And they're there in a different way. They're there in a different way, you know. Mm-hmm. And even now, I have people who would be my aunts and uncles who are now in their, you know, late 70s and 80s who tell me, my God, Rochelle, you sound so much like your mother, which I take as a compliment. Um, you know, I'm grateful if I, if I can sound like her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. I, I've seen, I think, a picture of her, and you look just like her, <laughs> too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm wondering about, you've written... You spoke about how the last few years you've been uh, a bit nomadic, yeah. and and um, I you've written a bit about comfort and and our as a culture 
maybe attachment to comfort. And I'm wondering how it, how that way, how your way of living over the past years, if it has been a, a letting go of certain forms of comfort and, and if so, what that has brought forth or what you have learned. Well, I have an appreciation for hangers that I never had before. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Because so much of my uh, life these past few years has been living out of a suitcase and out of my car. And uh, so when, you know, when someone actually clears a big portion of closet space with, and there's empty hangers there, I, it's, it's really quite something just to notice my own reaction to that and go, wow, what an amazing thing, you know. So I've noticed that my, uh, my appreciation for life and for things that come my way has, has only gone up. And, uh, and so now I, I really track, you know, where my own sense of entitlement will come in. Uh, but, uh, you know, increasing uh, or, or decreasing my level of comfort has increased my joy and my tolerance and my patience and my love for all things, you know, including appreciating why people don't want to give those things up. I get it. I get it. Um, but I don't think that all those comforts uh, ultimately uh, pay out and pay off in the way that we uh, hope or imagine they will. I think there's, there's a heavy shadow to it all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's making me think of an experience I had that was something of the opposite of yours, which was that I was flying somewhere and I gave up my seat and got bumped to a later flight and they put me in first class as a sort of way of saying thank you and maybe because there was no other seats on the flight that I switched to. And it was amazing to me. I believe my exact words when I got off the plane and described this to my father was I turned into a monster. <laughs> but but that the the level of comfort offered created this sort of instant sense of entitlement to where the the fact that they were out of a particular sandwich for the lunch that I would not have had if I was in economy was suddenly outrageous to me. And I was so upset and felt so, you know, victimized. And I, and I was watching this happen and I sort of couldn't believe it. And it, and it made me realize how, um, how sensitive or, or I am to, the, and maybe all of us are to the, to the structures around us. And that things like comfort have, real consequence that we may not perceive. And, and you were speaking to one side of that, that, that a little bit less comfort can open up gratitude and joy. And I had this experience on the other side of, of the constriction that happened in the face of increased comfort. And it was so interesting and upsetting, really. Yes. Yeah, that is... That is true. That is definitely true as well. I mean, I, I just think about this is something, an example I'll give in workshops, you know, mostly to just laugh at. But, uh, you know, there used to be, remember the Yellow Pages? You I know? do. Okay. <laughs> For those who don't know, the Yellow Pages is a phone book, <laughs> an old phone book uh, that little children sit on in order to be able to get closer to the table, right? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh there's the pizza section of that would be usually quite large. And uh, 
Um, and so you, you could order your pizza, and if it's not delivered within 20 minutes, uh, it's free. I don't know how many people would take advantage of that if the pizza was five minutes late, but I think there's a fair number, and that speaks to exactly what you were speaking to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sense of entitlement and the rage, and uh, we're not actually happy when we get everything that we want, it turns out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're we're getting close to the end of our time together, and I'm wondering, you're you seem to me to be someone really committed to beauty and, and I'm wondering um, what, what do you do in your days to make space or invite in beauty? Mm. Well, reading and writing poetry is one of the things that I do. I'm also, I am an avid photographer still I love going for walks. I, you know, this time of year is just just staggeringly beautiful. Um, I love going down to the ocean. For me, just being still, being outdoors is is a way for me to to take in beauty. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, every little thing that I'm doing, I try to pay attention. I don't always manage to, but you know, just like frying an egg is a beautiful thing. <laughs> Just the the sound of it crackling in the pan with the butter, and uh, there there is a lot of beauty in this world, and it can be seen and found in all sorts of small places. Thank you so much, Rochelle, for joining me in conversation, and for tending so carefully to words that we might be able to better communicate with one another and speak to the beauty and trouble around us in these times. It's been a pleasure. My guest today has been Rochelle Lamb, writer, speaker, and communication coach. More information about Rochelle's work, including individual coaching, workshops, and her poetry and prose can be found at rochellelamb.com. Next week, Precipice will be back with Rebecca Rivetto, a licensed marriage and family therapist working in a California middle school. We'll be speaking about what it's like to be a young person in this culture and how to approach making change in large institutions. Please join us for that conversation at this time, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. It has been such a pleasure to be here with all of you today. Thank you for listening in. Should life be granted to us between this time and the next, I'll speak with you next week. In the meantime, may we be willing to stand at the edge unblinking together. I'm Annie Levin, and this is Precipice. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing, to greater degrees of compassion, and to pathways to health for our world with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's health and wellness channel. Thank you.